Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning, once again, to the Gospel according to Mark, where we are going to be looking together at chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. Mark chapter 7, 1 through 23, you can find that passage on page 984, I'm sorry, 88 in your new Bibles, 988. Well, as we've said many times now, Mark has been placing before us the biblical Jesus from the very outset of this gospel narrative. We have witnessed here in Mark his glory, his power, his sovereignty, his wonderful providence, his immeasurable mercy and grace. He has revealed himself to his people as the great, long-promised shepherd king. Beloved, if you're like me, hopefully you've grown in your appreciation for the gospel according to Mark, and you've grown in your sense of awe for who Jesus is as Mark has done so. We are seeing Jesus Christ here as he truly is, and it's wonderful. And now Mark is going to continue that revelation by allowing for us to see something that is true of all of us. Just how greatly we truly need him. We're going to be looking together at the very clear teaching here of our Lord Jesus Christ on the issue of sin. Perhaps even more importantly, where our point of contact with it is. As Christians coming at things from the Reformed perspective, we hopefully have some very clear, very distinct definitions in our minds when we think about something like sin. Westminster, larger catechism, sin is defined as any want or conformity unto or any transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. Sin, quite simply stated, is breaking the holy law of God. The Heidelberg Catechism makes this clear as well in question number three, which very plainly states that we know sin from the law of God. In the law of God, we see the perfect standard of righteousness, and perhaps even more importantly, we see not just that standard, but we see our complete inability to keep or to conform to that standard at all. Question four of the Heidelberg further expands our explanation of sin, summarizing the law and its just requirements. It asks that question, what does the law require? The answer, Christ teaches us in some Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Question five of the Heidelberg then answers what the extent of our ability to keep that perfect standard of God's law truly is. And again, it answers it very directly. And very clearly, question, can you keep this law perfectly? 
which, by the way, is exactly what the law demands, that you keep it perfectly. Can you keep this law perfectly? And the answer in the catechism is no. For I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. So we not only know exactly what sin is, it's breaking the law of Almighty God, we even go so far as to explain exactly where it comes from. According to the word of God, according to our confessions, beloved, it comes from our corrupted, fallen, and depraved natures. That's our point of contact. I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Sin comes from within us all. As those who call themselves Reformed, those who uphold the Reformed confessions of our fathers in the faith, we hopefully have a very firm grasp on what we refer to as total depravity. The fact that we are fallen in our father Adam, and that when Adam fell in the garden, that he fell as our representative had, we fell with him. His sin is our sin. His guilt is our guilt. We are guilty of it as if it were our own. And since that fall, because of sin, the nature of man is now marred. Created in the image of God, that image has been corrupted. It is depraved. It is inclined towards sin. It is fallen. Beloved, that's what we believe. And it's certainly what we confess. This doctrine of sin is what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ such truly good and wonderful news to all of us. Because, beloved, it's only when we see by the power of the Holy Spirit of God what we truly are and what we truly deserve as those under God's law and under its penalty, it's only then that we are blessed to glimpse Jesus Christ crucified for us. It's only then that we realize that we have very much to be eternally grateful for. So when it comes to sin, we would have to say that we believe that Scripture is clear. I believe our confessions are clear. Our catechism is clear. We should have a thorough understanding. A very distinct, well-worked out, well-thought-out doctrine of sin in the true state of the world from the grace of all God. So the question then naturally arises. Why focus on it again? Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, we focus on it, and we will focus on it again and again and again for the same reason that our Lord Jesus Christ continually taught those who gathered around him exactly what sin was, exactly where it came from, where it originated. We must know ourselves as sinners to ever see our need of the amazing grace that has been given to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We must get to that truth to ever understand the absolute glory or the magnificence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To ever see Jesus as he's revealed himself in his word. Though we think that we know, 
think if we're honest, we would have to say that we are constantly tempted to cling to so much less in the Christian life. Right? We are tempted to cling to mere externals. We are tempted to live with the empty husk of religion. Like moths drawn to the flame, so we are drawn to our own works, to our own insatiable lust to be justified by that. In order to try and prove our Christianity, not just to the world, perhaps even more often to the church, with our forced outward displays of our supposed inherent goodness. We see the righteousness of the Pharisees and we're attracted to what they had achieved. Reputation, respect, the best seats in the synagogues, the most eloquently offered prayers, the praise of the people. They were the gold star standard of achievement for God to the people around them. However, beloved, if we read the New Testament with anything like discretion, the only thing we could honestly say that the Pharisees ever achieved was the very special place of being the group that received more of our Lord's vehement rebuke than any other group. Jesus attacked. He loathed out loud their despicable self-righteousness like no other sin in his entire earthly ministry. And Mark knows you and I need to see it. We need to see it if we're ever truly going to run to Jesus for life. It's my hope this morning to look a bit closer at this teaching of Jesus before us and to walk away with a more thorough understanding of where it was that Jesus taught that our point of contact with sin was, where it originated. And in doing so, to gain some understanding of why there really is no room at all for any boasting for those who are truly in Christ Jesus by faith. And having seen that, it's my desire to remind us all once again why we of all people have so much reason to be here this morning and every Lord's Day for that matter. For the privilege and pleasure of worshiping Him who is both the author and the finisher of our amazing salvation. So I'd like you to follow along with me this morning as I read from God's holy and errant and infallible word, Mark chapter 7. I'll pick up with verse 1 and read through verse 23. Hear now the word of our Lord. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat meat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? But eat bread with unwashed hands. And he answered and he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, 
but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. And he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you may have received from me is Corbin, that is, is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down. And many such things you do. When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the hearts of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to come before your word this morning. We ask that you would clear our hearts and our minds of the many many things of this life that distract us, that we would give our undivided attention to the glorious truth of your word and hearing that word through the power of your spirit, that we would be transformed by it for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Picking up where we left off in chapter six, Jesus has continued to grow in fame and reputation as he continued to draw these large crowds wherever he would go. And so it really comes as no surprise that Jesus had once again drawn the attention of the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. And of course, we know this was not the first time, right? We've witnessed this kind of collision of two kingdoms here before in Mark. Now, some of them, we are told, had come from Jerusalem and they were looking for an opportunity to level an accusation against this man. The man, Jesus, who had had the audacity to claim in front of the people that he was, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God. And they did not have to watch for very long to find the disciples of Jesus breaking with their beloved tradition as they observed that they were eating with what they deemed in their own tradition to be unclean hands. 
They had not properly, ritually washed prior to eating as the Pharisees had taught must be done. So they asked Jesus what exactly it was, why exactly it was that his disciples broke from the traditions of their fathers and ate with unwashed hands. And Jesus here uses the occasion as a teaching opportunity for these crowds. And he pointed out the blatant hypocrisy of the Pharisees. You remember that word hypocrisy? It it means literally play actor. They're playing a role. They're pretending to be something they are not. And Jesus calls them what they are. He calls them hypocrites. And he says that they clung much more tightly to the traditions of men than they did to the actual law of God. In fact, Jesus says they will break the law of God in order to keep the traditions of men. And he went out to point out one such example to them. One, it was in God's providence. We read uh, where we were in the catechism this morning. It talks about the fifth commandment and the way that one is called to honor their father and their mother and using a typical rabbinic trick, the Pharisees had said, that if a man would just vow his wealth to the temple, then money that would have been used to care for his aging parents would not have to be used. In fact, he would be freed from the obligation that he would even have to care for or provide for them according to the law of God. In other words, if he followed the traditions of the Pharisees, he would somehow be free from his obligation to the law of God through this redefining of the holy law of God, which they did so often, always to fit their own wicked and self-righteous purposes. That's what the Pharisees did. We need to see their error. They did not expand the law of God. That's what people usually believe. The Pharisees went above and beyond the law of God. That's not what they did with all of their rituals and all of their outward demonstrations of righteousness. In typical fleshly fashion, they diminished the law with their own doable trans, their own doable traditions. And they made those things then the gauge for whether or not one could be considered righteous. They held their traditions much, much higher than they did the actual law of God. In fact, as I said, they broke the law of God to keep their tradition. You understand what I'm saying? They passed up the opportunity to love their neighbor so they could stand in judgment over him. We have to notice that. They proved with their actions that they did not possess even a fundamental understanding of real righteousness in the eyes of the holy law of God. And as a result, they did not understand even the very first thing about sin. And beloved, that problem has never stopped plaguing the Christian church. They have not yet even begun to wrap their futile minds around what the real condition of their own hearts were. It's not only their understanding of righteousness that is fundamentally flawed, 
so too is their understanding of sin, unrighteousness. They think far too highly of themselves. And Jesus rightly rebukes them for it. And he does not just stop with rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees, does he? He then turns his attention back to the crowd and he calls for all of them to take heed, to listen very carefully to what he is about to say. He says, hear me, everyone, and understand. Hear this, process this, know this, live in light of this. Jesus is not simply calling on them to half-heartedly give their attention to his words. He says, listen and understand. What you are about to hear is of utmost importance. It's critical in the Christian life. You would do well to give your full undivided attention to what I'm about to tell you here. And he calls not only for understanding as he begins, but he ends this very brief lesson the exact same way he begins it by calling for all of those who have been given the gift of having seeing eyes and hearing ears, those who had been given the gift of understanding through the power of the Holy Spirit of God to heed his words. The repetition here points to the importance of what Jesus will state between those two things. We see without a doubt that the point that Jesus was about to make about sin was of great importance. And I can only imagine how the Pharisees and the scribes had to have reacted to this. Or at least I can imagine their disgust that would have filled them when they heard it. They spent so much of their time piously pointing out to everyone else where sin was. And I am sure they were not at all happy to hear Jesus point out where it really was where it really originated. Look at what Jesus said. There is nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. And the disciples, as was usually the case, were a bit perplexed by what Jesus was saying. So they waited to get him alone and they said, Jesus, how can this be? What do you mean by this? If we're only defiled by what comes from within, I mean, wouldn't that mean that we are all defiled all the time? So they asked Jesus once the crowd had gone away and they were alone, what do you mean by this? Jesus marvels again that they're still without understanding of this fundamental principle of sin and where it comes from and we're humbly reminded that fallen man is completely incapable of wrestling with even the simplest truths of the Christian faith if not for the gift of the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to these truths. Even the mightiest supposed intellect among us would be completely without understanding without the Spirit of God. And so Jesus explains it to them. He says, do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is thus eliminated. 
What comes out of a man, that's what defiles a man. Jesus gives to them a type of parable here to illustrate exactly what he meant. In other words, he says that what a man takes into his mouth does not affect him spiritually, but it affects his digestion. And in due course, his digestion takes care of itself. It's not the things that are outside of us that we take in that defile us, but the things that come from within us. From our own hearts. What comes from within us? Beloved, what is it that comes from our hearts? According to Jesus Christ, our, our hearts, apart from the grace of God, are fountainheads of wickedness. Do you believe that this morning? He says that out of our hearts come evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, lewdness, evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Certainly not an exhaustive list, but it's at the very least rather extensive, isn't it? It's safe to say that everything that can truly defile us, everything that can make us unrighteous before Almighty God, everything that sin truly consists of comes from where? From our hearts. And God will have our hearts. Not just your behavior. He will have your heart. Beloved, I trust you feel the weight of Christ's words words here. Do you understand why this is so fundamental to correctly understanding who you are in Jesus Christ, what you've been given in Jesus Christ, and who Jesus himself was and is, why it's so necessary that you run to him in the first place. Because the Pharisees missed it. They were champions at being God's self-appointed morality police. They loved to go around and find fault. They used themselves as the measuring stick of so-called righteousness, and of course, more, most fell short of their albeit superficial standards. They hated Jesus. They hated his teaching. They hated the threat that he posed to their way of doing things. They hated his attack upon their tradition and professing themselves to be wise. They continually proved themselves to be fools. They were so wrapped up in themselves that they could never see their own need for the wonderful, matchless grace of Jesus Christ that we so love to sing about. They were so carried away in dressing up their fallen natures that they could not see that they were only playing dress-up. Hypocrites. Play-actors. They were like the emperor in the story of the emperor's new clothes. You know that story. I've talked about it before, right? Popular story. The emperor, a very prideful man, had been sold a false bill of goods by some very clever, very crafty thieves. And he so believed the lie of these thieves about this invisible finery that they were supposedly dressing him up in, this rich apparel that was so fine, that was so majestic, so elegant, that only the most refined, exquisite taste could actually see it. 
So this emperor, carried away in his pride, then strutted out in front of his subjects, thinking his apparel to be the finest in the land, while his subjects began running away and recoiling and turning their eyes away from his wretched nakedness. That's what the Pharisees did. These men supposed that they wore the finest masks before the eyes of men, yet before Almighty God, they were stripped bare. Their foulness was always uncovered. The Pharisees knew the right things to say. They could recite large portions of Scripture, but they were always hearing, always speaking, and never understanding. And it played out in their horribly hypocritical, self-righteous lives. Now, perhaps you're saying to yourself this morning, Steve, come on, man, we know about the Pharisees. You talk about them all the time. You bring them up in your sermons. You bring them up in Sunday school. We've read the Bible. We read Christ's rebukes of them in Scripture. We're constantly being reminded of the dangers surrounding self-righteousness. We know. We get it. Why do you keep bringing it up? Well, beloved, it is because of the lust of our flesh that is constantly screaming for this lesser form of righteousness that really is no righteousness at all. We desire in our flesh to be justified in the eyes of men more than we desire to be justified by Almighty God. Beloved, I hope by the grace of God that the truth, that truth, will be proclaimed from this pulpit forever until the Lord calls us home. Not as a means of exasperating us, but to point us towards and remind us of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you understand? Jesus never ceased making this point hit home during his earthly ministry. I told you this morning in Sunday school, self-righteousness It's not just a denial of who Jesus is in the Old Testament. It's a denial of the subject matter of the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. It's a denial of redemption and your need for it. I want you to understand there is a vast difference between simply hearing and truly understanding. Understanding that is truly understanding is never demonstrated by simply being able to repeat what you've heard. One of the things I constantly do with the kids in catechism class is after we have recited a particular question and answer and it's been sufficiently memorized and I've asked them some direct yet very obvious questions that they can then answer directly from the wording of the catechism, I always ask them something less obvious. I ask them something so that they can prove to me that they not only know the catechism, but they understand the catechism and they can apply the catechism because as their pastor as their teacher it's their understanding that I want I need to know that they understand something like the glorious doctrines of grace so knowing may be the physical act of hearing but understanding is enlightened hearing hearing that can only come 
from the Spirit of Almighty God, unstopping our sin-deafened ears. And when the Spirit of God opens ears and opens sin-blinded eyes to these truths, then indeed we are new creatures in Christ. The life that has embraced Jesus Christ by faith is a life that has been forever changed. The old man has been crucified, dead and buried. The new man is alive with Christ and actively grateful for the grace that is allowed for a wretched sinner to be reconciled to a perfectly holy God. It's an act of complete humility. Never an exercise of pride. It is Jesus alone who makes me able to stand before the judgment seat of Almighty God. And anything that I bring to the table, it's never anything I bring. The only thing I bring is what? My sin and my misery. So I ask you this morning, beloved, do you understand sin? Do you know That all the wickedness that fills this earth flows from hearts just like mine and like yours. Apart from the grace of God and Jesus Christ, that is the situation. Do you relate more with the scoundrels that surrounded Jesus who gobbled up the true spiritual food that he fed to them and lived or with the Pharisees? were highly thought of by everyone who mattered, but who never did anything other than smack away the food from Christ's hand every single time he offered it, and who perished eternally because of it. Think for a moment about your own life. How do you approach the Word of God in reading, in taking in sermons? What is it that impresses you? Is it your own mighty intellect? Your own ability to recite profound doctrinal insight to whoever will give you an audience? Or do you come to the word of God humbly, like a child, in complete and utter dependence upon the very spirit of God to give you insight? Like mighty King David, who continually begged of God in the Psalms, teach me your statutes. Teach me to love them. Beloved, what do you rely on? What about your approach to those that Almighty God in His His providence has placed you around? How do you approach these this morning? Do you think it's a blessing Be with people like these. Can you learn here from these? Can God teach you here? Can God correct you here? Can he chastise you here? Or has he called you to the noble position of being his policeman here? As he called you to point out all the sins that seem to be swirling all around you, completely out of control, defiling you even now as you sit in this congregation this morning. 
Are you someone who scrutinizes every word that falls out of your brother or sister's mouths, all the while, all the while never being so wise even once to guard your own gossiping tongue? To ever consider your own feeble works, your own sin-stained words. Has God called you to tear down the saints or to build them up? And I know I'm meddling here, right? Because I have to. What about your traditions? Do your traditions define the word of God or does the word of God define your traditions? Are you more upset at the upsetting of your tradition than you are, say, when you hear something like the name of Almighty God being taken in vain? When you see the mockery of God in the lives of the ones you love, perhaps even see it in your own life. God will not be mocked. He promises that. What we do in the dark will be drug into his glorious light. What about your approach to sin? Do you think that by cloistering yourselves together with only like-minded people that you can avoid the awful influence of sin that comes from, you know, out there in the world? I see this far more often than I'd like to admit, even in reform circles. There seems to be this consensus that we could all somehow avoid the destructive influence of this world and sin upon our children if we just work hard enough to keep the world away. We just circle our wagons and keep all of them outside our safe space, our safe little sphere, forgetting that. According to the Lord Jesus Christ, the real danger to our children lies within their own hearts. Do you realize this truth with your own children or your grandchildren? In all of our management of them, We would do well to never forget that the true seeds of all rebellion and mischief and wickedness are in their own hearts. Though you may think you can somehow shelter them from all the evil in this world, you will never shelter them from what lies within them. So you better show them the gospel. Praise be to God that he has shown to us the remedy for all of our ailing hearts. The only remedy for what truly ails them, the only remedy for what truly ails us is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Justified life in him. We must point our kids to Jesus. It's easy for us to look around and blame everything else for our kids when they find themselves in trouble. We look around, we blame their friends, we blame their companions, we say, you know, we should have never let them hang around so-and-so, and of course, bad companions bring about a great deal of evil. They should be avoided. But I'm going to tell you this, no bad companion teaches a boy or a girl half as much sin as their own hearts will whisper to them. Unless those hearts have been renewed by the Holy Spirit of Almighty God and recreated in Christ Jesus. That truly is where our hope lies. That our God is in the business of recreating hearts. King David, upon acknowledging his sin before Almighty God, what did he pray? Create in me a new heart, 
O Lord. We read in Scripture about the hearts of stone being removed and replaced with hearts of flesh. The Apostle Paul talks about the dying of our old man that is our hope. Once we have realized how far off we truly are, then and only then, by the grace of Almighty God, do we see the need that we have of a righteousness foreign to our own flawed, decrepit attempts at righteousness. Coming to the end of ourselves is not falling into the abyss of despair. It is, in fact, the only way to see the joy that is truly ours in Jesus Christ. Beloved, there is hope upon the recognition of our sinful hearts as the source for the wickedness that surrounds us. It stops our finger pointing and it turns our heads upward toward Jesus Christ. We die to ourselves and we live grateful life in him. It's not there as a result of my neighbor. Do you believe that? Do you really understand it? When Jesus talks about the sin that comes from the hearts of men, I want you to understand, he's not just talking about the Charles Mansons or the Adolf Hitlers or the Osama Bin Ladens. He's he's not thinking only of those notorious sinners that you can bring up in your mind at a moment's notice. He's talking about the hearts of men and women and children just like just like me, who have, because of their father Adam, found themselves to be in a position just like ours, having hearts that have become corrupted through sin and are inclined towards sin. All of us, by nature, apart from the grace of God and Jesus Christ, have hearts just like the one that Jesus is describing here. It's only by the grace of God alone that we have not fallen in the same ways that others have. Because we too are fallen, and the seeds of such wickedness lie within us all. And so if you are like the Pharisee this morning, then know that this kind of message is only going to aggravate you. The thought that you and all of your splendid righteousness with all of your well-documented service to God and His church could ever be compared with some of the less savory ones of society, that's going to upset you. I don't want to say I don't care, but I don't care. It has to upset us because it's true. This is who we are. And if that's where your heart is this morning, I would call on you once again to hear not just the word of God, but by the grace of God, through the giving of his Holy Spirit, that you would understand it and that you would embrace it. If you want to understand how your neighbor could possibly be so wicked, then take a closer look at your own heart and be horrified by what you see. Peer into the law of God and see the monster looking back out at you. So horrified that having come to an end of yourself, and an end of your foolish pride that God in his grace will lift your head and the spirit of God will illuminate Jesus and his perfect righteousness before your eyes. Then there will be no more worship of God being driven only by your desire to look like you do the right thing. But your worship, worship will be driven by inexplicable gratitude, 
and your joy and your rest in Jesus Christ will make worship not simply your duty, but your privilege and your highest pleasure. Beloved, do you recognize yourself this morning in the Pharisee? Do you think that sin is out there outside the walls of your well-built fortress of solitude? And start looking for the enemy within. Brothers and sisters in Christ, praise God for his grace. And worship him this morning as one who, though dead, has been given the gift of life in Jesus Christ. Cling to Jesus and his righteousness, his work for for you, and spend your life, spend your days rejoicing in grateful obedience to the King of Kings, to the glory of God. Amen.